Let me pray, and then we'll jump in to this morning's sermon. Father, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for all the people that have been able to come back. And Lord, we pray that you'd continue to um, just bring this worldwide pandemic to an end. We pray, particularly for India, that you would have mercy. You would bring help and relief. And Lord, we pray for your, your word, that it would sharpen us and excite us and make us more passionate about you. We ask, Holy Spirit, you would help us to see you through the scriptures. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I want you to picture this sermon. We're in the book of Exodus. We're, we're continuing our survey in the book of Exodus. I want you to picture this sermon as an upside-down equilateral triangle. So picture a triangle. So we're going to talk about a lot of stuff in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And it's going to come to a very sharp point at the end. And that's when Mark Altrogi is going to lead us in communion. So if all goes well, that is where we're heading. We are doing a survey, so that means at times we're going to fast forward in certain parts of Exodus. So today we fast forward to Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And if you know anything about the book of Exodus, after chapter 20 is really when most people who are on Bible reading programs, they just kind of fall off the edge. Uh, It gets kind of confusing. It gets very detailed. Um, It gets a little hard to understand why this is important for you to know in the year 2021. And so what we are hoping, this has been one of our prayers for this whole series, is that we would give you things to grab a hold of in the Bible, biblical ideas and concepts that will really help you in the book of Exodus and really the first five books of the Bible. So when you feel like you're starting to slip or fall off the edge, um, we're hoping today and the weeks to come, you would have some places to grab a hold of. So I want you to picture now, picture the book of Exodus as we've been on a rock climbing expedition. And so far, we've been traversing different things. We have saw the Passover. We saw the Red Sea crossing. Um, all that's exciting and easy in some ways to understand and see God's power. And now we're starting to get a little steeper. And we're about to hit a, a really kind of vertical wall. And if you know anything about rock climbing, really the key is to have places to grab a hold of with your fingers and places to put your feet. Now, I'm not a rock climber, but I have watched Free Solo, and I have watched Bear Grylls uh, lead people in rock climbing. And the key is you just grab a hold. So how hard could it be? So when we come to the book of Exodus, particularly when we talk about the Ten Commandments and the law and the tabernacle and the temple, we get to see all these things... Here's two places to grab a hold of that will help you every time. And the two big ideas I want you to think about is the character of God. What does this tell us about who God is? What does this particular detail in the Bible tell us about the character of God? And where do we see God's covenant, God's promise to his people? Because today we're going to look at what is called the Mosaic Covenant. God making his covenant with his people in the giving of the Ten Commandments. And if you think of where's God's character and which of God's covenants is this in this passage? Is this God's grand promise to Abraham? Is this God's giving of the law? Is this the the promise to David of a Savior and a Messiah to come? If you just look for those throughout the Old Testament, you'll be able to grab a hold and maybe make sense of things that seem a little confusing. So here's the big idea today. Our holy God, our holy and gracious God, 
requires and forms a holy people. Our holy and gracious God, so he's holy and he's gracious, he requires and forms a holy people. So point number one, we're going to start in um, Exodus chapter 19. Point one is God keeps his covenant to Abraham. God keeps his covenant to Abraham. Now, in our day and age, we don't use that word covenant very much. We don't think about it very much. Probably the only time we think about it is, is at weddings, if you're attending a wedding. Um, so let me just give you a dictionary definition of a covenant from the dictionary of the Old Testament Pentateuch, which you probably read this morning. So here it is. A solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenant covenanting parties. It's, a, it's this guarantee that God makes with his people. Some are one way and some are, are two way. So the Abrahamic covenant in many ways is primarily one way. It's an unconditional covenant that God promised to Abraham um, a n- number of things and one of those is your, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. God's going to do that no matter what happens. The Mosaic Covenant, we're going to see God makes a promise. He rescues his people, and then he gives them expectation for how they should live. So we're going to start with God keeping his covenant to Abraham. We're going to see that in Exodus 19. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. So remember what just happened not too long ago. The Passover happened, the Red Sea crossing Uh, Pharaoh and his army were swallowed up by the Red Sea, and now God's people are wandering through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. Now they're going to be at the base of Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments will be given. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. There Israel camped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So Moses is the mediator, the representative of God's people. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel. Here's what I want you to tell them. Remember, this is the people that have been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You shall be a holy nation. You shall be priests. Think about who these people were. Just a few months earlier, they were making bricks. They were getting beaten by Pharaoh and his soldiers. And God is saying, you are my people. I'm the God over the entire globe. And I'm going to use you throughout the globe. And you are going to be a unique people. See, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, 
Sin entered the world. It broke the relationship with God, their maker. And every human being inherited. And since that moment, God has been seeking a people for himself. And this big story is unfolding. And in in Genesis chapter 12 through 17, we get the details of the Abrahamic covenant where God promises to Abraham all these incredible things. He promises a people, a nation, a land. He promises that he will be a blessing to them so that they will actually be a blessing to all people groups, all nations. So even in Genesis chapter 12, we see God's heart for the whole world, not just the Jewish people. And that whenever you're reading in the Bible and you see Jacob's name, what you need to do is go backwards. So imagine when you see Jacob, you want to think family tree. Okay, I want to go backwards. I want to go to Jacob, then Isaac, then Abraham. And that goes right back to the covenant God made with Abraham. See, God wants us to make that connection. He wants the people to know that I am the promise keeper that made this original promise with Abraham. I will not fail you. I will keep my promise. And so the Bible in the Old Testament is the unfolding of the ups and downs of a land and a nation, and then they lose ground, and then they gain ground, and then they lose ground. And then one day, ultimately, when Jesus returns, ground will be gained forever and ever. But we can't read this section of Exodus without thinking of this verse in 1 Peter. And this verse is talking about Christians, male and female, no matter if they were Jewish or not, this was primarily non-Jewish people who were enslaved to all kinds of sins and pagan ideas and put their faith in Christ. And this is what Peter writes to them while they are in exile under the threat of persecution. And this is true of you, if you know Jesus. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just like the Israelites were called out of slavery and the darkness that was there in Egypt, you too were called out. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. No matter what's happening in your life right now, if you know Jesus, you are the recipient of incredible mercy. You are part of a holy nation. You're part of an eternal family that will last forever. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's a New Testament calling for his people. But we're going to see as we're going through Exodus 19 and 20 and the Ten Commandments are given, In principle, it's the same idea. God calls us out, and then he gives us an expectation of how we should live in response to being on the receiving end of his love, his mercy, and his grace. So look at verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. 
All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they say, we're going to do whatever you say. Whatever the Lord said to you, Moses, we will do. This is kind of the equivalent, if you know the rest of the story, of when parents ask their kids to do something before they're leaving, and they're leaving their teenage kids at home to do chores and do everything, and they say, oh, sure, Mom, Dad, we'll do whatever you tell us. Have fun. Have a good day. Garage door shuts, and who knows what they do for a while. I'm not talking about my family, just hypothetical family. Because what we know, they, they, they pledge, we will do whatever God told you, Moses. We know that's not the case. They're going to fumble and fall and stumble all over the place, just like we do. Verse 8, and all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. In other words, I'm not just going to speak directly to you, Moses. I'm going to speak in such a way that all the people will hear and know that the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, is talking. The next thing we're going to see in this section is God is going to tell Moses some very important details for the Israelites. He's going to tell them that as he reveals himself on this mountain, they are not allowed to come up. In fact, if they do come up, they will die immediately. So that's a little different than you might get sick if you eat too many cookies. No, if you touch this mountain, if you come up, you're toast. You're going to die. Why would that be? Well, the reason that would be is our second point. God's holiness requires a mediator. God's holiness requires a mediator. If you remember in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of paradise. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because their sin separated them from God's holiness. God does not change. So the only way sinners can approach God is through a mediator. God's holiness requires a mediator. Verse 10. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready on the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. So God is going to reveal himself. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So in other words, they're to consecrate themselves to get ready for God's presence. And remember I said one of the handles to grab on as you're reading through the Old Testament, as we get into the temple and the tabernacle and all the details, one big idea to remember is God is holy. And a holy God requires perfection. And we're not perfect. 
He requires sacrifice for the imperfect. And so all the different sacrifices of the Old Testament are dealing with this dilemma of how can someone with a sinful nature be in the presence of a holy God. And as we said uh, before, as you go through these Old Testament books, there are types of Christ, pictures, um, things that point to, to the, the real Savior Messiah to come. Moses is a type of Christ. We're going to see today and throughout Exodus, he is a mediator between God's people. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible paints even the heroes of the Bible with all their flaws. We see, we see that they, even the best of them, like Moses, get angry, charge God, get angry at the people, get angry at God, hit rocks in anger. They, they do things that are not perfect. But Moses is mediating between God and the people, and that's pointing to a mediator that will one day come. And the mediator that will one day come, who has come, is absolutely perfect. So as we're going through our upside-down equilateral triangle, we're coming down on layers. This is an important layer. 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So all the Old Testament, in some way, all the covenants, all the details, they're pointing to this Messiah who will one day come. This perfect mediator. And his name's Jesus. And when Jesus came, he obeyed the law in every facet. And he died on the cross and paid for our sins. So he mediated, he absorbed the wrath of God that we all deserve. And we're going to see that even a little bit more clearly in a moment. Back to our passage, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So you just read that, but there's thunder. Imagine, you, you hear that with your ears. It's, it's thunder that's going through your body. There's lightning flashing all around. There's a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud supernatural trumpet blast and the people trembled they rightly feared the lord the holy god is revealing himself then moses brought the people out of the camp to meet god and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now mount sinai was wrapped in smoke because the lord had descended on it in fire the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So the people are trembling. The mountain itself is trembling. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. So this very vivid, loud, incredible scene is happening. And Moses, as God's representative for the people, the mediator, is called to go up. And God's going to speak, and he's going to give them things for the whole people. So, Moses is about to head up, and God's going to give him some warnings for the people, some reminders of how serious it is to disobey the parameters. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, 
lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. So if the curiosity gets them. Now some are just cowering in fear. Some who should be cowering in fear are like, ah, maybe I want to check it out. Maybe I should go up. Just go up a few feet and see what, what it's really like. Saying, don't do that. Because if you do that, you will die instantly. Verse 22. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. So God's special represents have them consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up and bring Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. So he's giving them instruction. So all of this is the buildup for the giving of the Ten Commandments that we're about to read. And the reason the buildup is so important because I think in our day and age, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we probably at times just think, oh, they got removed from a, a courtroom somewhere in a state that's you know, not ours. And, and we don't give it careful thought. And we certainly don't think about the context of it. And so now that the scene is set for God to give the beginning of his law, or at least the summary of his law. But before he does that, he wants to remind them and us that he redeems and saves before he requires. He redeems and saves before he requires us to live a certain way. Point number three, God's redemption is a call to character transformation. God's redemption is a call to character transformation. That sentence is carefully worded. It doesn't say character transformation is a requirement for salvation or redemption. That's not what the Bible teaches. No, God rescues and then he transforms and calls us to be different. Enables us, as we'll see, to be different. Look at verse 1 and 2. Whenever you read the Ten Commandments, you should not exclude verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you, who saved you, who brought you out. That is so vital to understand before we hear all the, the rules that are about to be given. No, salvation comes first. Rescue comes first. But we don't want to make the other mistake either that some people make that, okay, I'm saved by Jesus, but I can live however I want. The Bible never teaches that in the Old Testament or the New Testament. God's redemption is a call to character transformation. God's salvation, God rescuing, God paying for us. It's a call to character transformation. It's not the means by which we are saved, but it's certainly part of salvation that God saves us and then calls us and expects us to be his representatives in the earth. And the Israelites are no different. Later on, after the giving of the law, Jeremiah writes this to God's people. 
For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. So the vertical relationship. They, they quit going to me for living water that would satisfy. And they hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that could hold no water. In other words, they left me and they went looking for satisfaction in life in other places. That's in the Old Testament. But it's very similar to the New Testament idea in Romans 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God saves us, and then calls us, expects us, holds us to a standard to be different. See, one of the other things to hold on to as you're reading through different parts of the Old Testament is God saves a people for himself to bring glory and honor to those around him and to be a blessing to those around him. See, God's people should be a blessing. It should make a difference if you live in a neighborhood beside somebody who knows the living God, that should be a good neighbor to have. Because their life should be, in a growing way, different than it was apart from knowing Jesus. Alright, so, now we're going to jump into the Ten Commandments. And I think the Ten Commandments are, are a thing like, we all have some familiarity with them. Even if you're not a Christian, you have some concept of them. But I think at times we don't think about them real carefully. And maybe we don't even know what to do with them as Christians. Because we think, like, aren't we saved by grace through faith? Isn't that a free gift, not by works? Absolutely. So what do we do with them? Well, let's read them first, and then we'll talk about what to do with them. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Just remember, the mountain's trembling now. He's getting the law. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. No, no, no idols. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let me just say just one quick thing. So no gods, that makes sense to us. We shouldn't put something above the living God. Uh, idols, we don't have carved idols, but we can have things that we make gods and we bow down to with our time, our money, our energy. So that, that somewhat makes sense to us. The, the idea of taking the Lord's name in vain, I think we maybe too narrowly make it, well, we, we shouldn't like swear using Jesus' name. Well, we shouldn't swear using Jesus' name. But there's more to that than taking his name in vain. Uh, John, I like how John Piper says it with this idea. He says, don't empty God of his weight and his glory. Don't, don't empty, don't, don't take something that belongs to God, that God should get the honor and the glory and just shake all the weight out of it. Number, next one. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it 
holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We're going to take a little bit more time with this one because I think the Sabbath confuses Christians a lot. So like some of you might mow your lawn today. Some of you might think it's a sin to mow your lawn today. Some of you might be mowing your lawn and you're wondering, should I be mowing my lawn today because I'm a Christian? And and we just don't know what to do with this one. And this one is the only one of the ten that is not repeated and affirmed and confirmed in the New Testament. In fact, in Christians, well, like godly Christians disagree on this. So I'll just give you my position on this. I don't think that the Sabbath is a requirement for Christians because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Uh, Colossians says that the Sabbath was a a shadow of what was to come. And Jesus was the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So I personally do not believe that we are bound to keep the Sabbath. Now in principle, it's a good thing to have a day of rest. that's, That's a good principle, but you're not bound to it. That could be a whole sermon in and of itself. So if you have questions about that, please talk to me or one of the other pastors. And I'm going to try to find um, just a clear article on the subject to send out to everybody this week um, if you have questions about that. Now, there is room to disagree with this subject. So we want to, if you're newer to the church, we like a healthy dialogue. We like pushback. We like to wrestle through these things. But Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And I think that makes a lot of sense if you you follow the line through the Bible. The next one is certainly repeated in the New Testament. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and the Lord your God has given you. We're to honor our father and our mother. Honor our parents. That's, That's reinforced in the book of Ephesians. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. It's Ten Commandments. So let's, let's, we're going to backtrack a little bit to understand. And to do so, I want you to think of kind of three analogies. So with the law, i got three props to help us understand it. This is how I would understand the law through a, a New Testament lens, especially the Ten Commandments. First is there a mirror. So we've got a mirror. This is actually not my mirror. Um, be embarrassing if it was. But this is a mirror. And a mirror is meant to see what we look like. So I'm looking at a mirror. And today I see I wore no suntan lotion yesterday at a track meet. So I'm bright red. Um, the purpose of a mirror is so we can see what we look like. Well, the God's law is a mirror. The Ten Commandments are a mirror, and we can see how we add up, stack up against God's holiness. Now, we know in the New Testament that Jesus pointed out with um, commandments such as, you shall not murder, you shall not, sh- shall not commit adultery, he actually upped the game quite a bit. And he said, as you're looking in the mirror, if you ever get angry at anyone, 
about anything in a sinful way, you've committed the sin of murder. If you've ever looked at a man or woman lustfully in any way, you've committed the sin of murder. So the, the mirror is a, the commandments are a mirror, and they're a probing mirror. They're a revealing mirror. And they're a mirror that we're going to see in a moment should drive us to Jesus. So one of the purposes of the law is to show that we need a Savior, that we don't meet the standard. And as you look in the mirror of God's law, think it's in thought, word, deed, and motive. So it's not just that I've, if you look up my name on a criminal background check, I have not murdered anybody. But I have gotten angry at people. And so I'm still guilty, even though I haven't gone to the fullest extent of that sin. So it is a mirror for us to evaluate and see our need for a Savior. But it's also a teacher. This is the best prop I could think of for a teacher. It's a teacher. It's good for God's people, both in the Old and New Testament, to have a teacher. Oh, we're to have God first. We're to, the first part of the Ten Commandments is all about our vertical relationship. We're not to, to bow down to other things. We're to live for Him. We're not to take His name in vain. But we're also, as God's people, we should have an effect. It should have an effect on how we treat others. We should honor our parents. We should not harm people in murder. We should not commit adultery. We should not steal. We should not bear false witness. We should not sinfully desire things that are not ours. Now, most of us, if not all of us, you're not desiring an ox or a donkey, but maybe it's your neighbor's house, your neighbor's boat, your neighbor's motorcycle, your neighbor's spouse. Oh, if only I had a spouse like that spouse. Well, that's a sin. That, that, that is a teacher. That's a warning. Okay, God's people are not to go there. So, Ten Commandments, mirror, teacher. And then the last analogy to think about that I found this one really helpful as I was studying. This is a coin. This is a quarter. It has two sides, heads and tails. The law, every one of them, every one of the Ten Commandments, um, what, it, what it says is, I want you to imagine it's one side of the coin. What it doesn't say is the other side of the coin. So let's go with coveting, for example. We're not to covet, simply desire things that are not ours. So let's say you have a really nice boat. The opposite of that is to be very generous with what God has given you. You, 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 you do the positive, the opposite of what the, the sin would be. If you're not to bear false witness of your neighbor, do you speak well of your neighbor? Do you honor your neighbor? Do you seek to serve your neighbor? Um, we're not to commit adultery. Are you vigilant if you're married to protect your marriage, to work hard to be a husband or a wife, to bring honor to the Lord? We're not to murder even in our hearts. So we're to love, and we're to love our enemies, not just those we like, as we heard this morning. So the law can be a mirror. It can be a teacher. It's like a coin. It has two sides. So God's people are hearing these things. 
And one of the things we learn is that they're going to have major trouble doing this. They're going to have major trouble keeping the law. So look at verses 18 through 21. Now when the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off. And Moses said, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you do not sin. So the fear of the Lord is a motivation to keep the law. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So they've been given these commandments, and they have to consider them, and they're to obey them. And we're going to see within moments, they're going to have major trouble keeping these commandments. So what do we do with that? It's our final point. The new covenant gives hope to the impossibility of perfect law keeping. The new covenant. Jesus is the one who introduces the new covenant. He is the maker of the new covenant. And it gives hope to the impossibility of perfect law keeping. So if you're honest, you cannot perfectly keep the Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed. You have not to this point in your life. Perfectly. So God requires perfection. So we got a problem if God doesn't solve it for us. Now when I said there are things to grab in the Old Testament, handles to climb onto that that help us make sense of things, Jeremiah the prophet, he actually gives us some hope in the Old Testament for God's people who by the time he's writing are falling and stumbling all over over the place trying to keep God's law. And sometimes don't even care or cold about it. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, we get a glimpse, a promise of a new covenant that's going to come, that's going to be greater than the Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai. That's going to be a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. This is what he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. I will put my law with in them and I will write it on their hearts so now something internal is going to happen to God's people and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me so no longer will it be a priest on a certain day of the year at a certain time but every person the common people will know the living God in a personal way And something will happen inside of them that will change them. They shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. So tribes aren't going to matter. Last names aren't going to matter. Who they're connected to isn't going to matter. All people. Isn't that what Jesus did when he came to earth? He, He went to all people. To the prostitutes and the liars and the thieves. All people. He's fulfilling these verses. 
For they shall know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will give, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. No more sacrifices. No more animal sacrifices. No more repeated sacrifices. No more long and lengthy rituals. There's this promise of this new covenant, this new agreement between God and man that will include forgiveness, that will invite everybody to partake in it, that will be once for all. The problem of sin will be taken care of. See, the new covenant gives hope to the impossibility of perfect law-keeping. Jesus perfectly kept and fulfilled the law. See, Jesus was Jewish. And he was not anti the Ten Commandments. He was not anti the first five books of the Bible. He was not anti the law. Listen to what he says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, I said that one of the ways to look at the law, and really the primary way I think the Apostle Paul uses the law is as a mirror. That we see our need, we see how short we fall. So I want you to imagine that this whole wall is a mirror. And it's a mirror that not only shows you what you look like, but your thoughts, your words and deeds since the moment you could talk and do things. So you're seeing all of that. As you're looking in this mirror, if you're a believer in Jesus, all of a sudden you see Jesus just covers it all. He covers every single wrong thing that's ever come out of your mouth. It's ever been in your thought, every action you've done, the worst of the worst. And so when you look in the mirror, all you see is Jesus' absolute perfection, complete fulfillment of the law. He blocks out all your sin, all memory of sin, all the worst of the worst from when you were really young. The ones you have not told anybody about in this room. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He perfectly obeyed in every way. So if you look into that mirror as a believer in Jesus, all your sins are blotted out, completely covered. That is the good news of the new covenant. Only Jesus could do that. See, when the Apostle Paul writes about the law in particular, you've got to understand he was a Pharisee. He was a trained Jewish scholar. He was a rising star among the studiers of the Jewish law. And then he meets Jesus. And so that's why he writes things like this. In Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If it was possible to be righteous through obeying the law, then Jesus shouldn't have died. But he knew it was impossible and the good news is that Jesus fully, completely obeyed the law. That is great news. Acts 13, 38 and 39 says it this way. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, 
that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Did you catch that? Everyone who believes in Jesus, fully trusts in Jesus, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, the Israelites were, were freed from physical slavery. You, as a believer in Jesus, are freed from spiritual slavery. See, the new covenant, God's Spirit comes inside of us. That written law inside of us is done by the Holy Spirit. And so now we have new power, new energy. We can actually change. We can actually be different. We can actually be free. And that's all because Jesus perfectly kept the law. So the law is definitely a mirror. Definitely a teacher. It's definitely like a coin. But the ultimate purpose should be pointing us to the one who fully kept the law. So let's pray. As we pray, the band's going to come up. And Mark's going to come up with them, and he's going to lead us in communion, and then we're going to sing a final song. So if you have the, the, the cup of juice and the, the wafer, you can open those up. If you didn't get them yet, they're out in the, the lobby. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus. Lord, I pray even as we take communion right now, we would have a fresh appreciation for the shed blood of the perfect Savior of the world. Pray our hearts will be filled with joy and gratitude. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just like to read a scripture here before we take the bread and the juice. This is Hebrews 12:18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, which we heard about this morning. Fearful, absolutely fearful thing to come to the mountain of God as it's described in that Old Testament passage. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, we, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel, Cain, his brother, killed him, and that blood spoke that he was guilty. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word, that we are cleansed, that Jesus has made us righteous and acceptable to God the Father. That Jesus has taken all our guilt away. We've come to that. We are celebrating with the saints in heaven and the angels. We have come to Jesus and that's what we celebrate as we, as we take the bread and the juice together. So, let's take the bread
Jesus, we thank you. This bread represents your body that was broken for us. That you gave your body to be tortured, to be, to be crowned with thorns, to be nailed to a cross. You gave your life for us and you were broken and so Lord we thank you and we remember that you did that so that we could be cleansed of our sins and accepted by you let's take the bread together Lord thank you and this juice reminds us Lord of your shed blood you said as often as you do this you do this in remembrance of me you said this was your blood that takes away the sins of the world your blood is the only thing that could cleanse us and the Bible says the life is in the blood so Lord Jesus thank you that you gave your life that we might have eternal life in you and so Lord thank you for shedding your blood for us, completely pouring out your life to bring us to God. We just thank you, Lord. We thank you that your blood cleanses and your blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which declared Cain guilty. Your blood declares us innocent, righteous, and holy in God's sight. And we thank you. Let's take the juice together. Lord, we just thank you. And we ask you now, as we finish with the song, fill us with thanks and praise to you for all you've done for us.